here. Uh, last time I was here, I neglected to introduce myself. Uh, you see, I, I grew up coming here, and so I just assumed that everybody knows me, but that isn't necessarily the case. You see, I uh, came to church here for the first 16 years of my life before my family and I moved to Dixon County, Tennessee, uh, where I attended high school and later attended at Fried Hardeman University for three years before transferring to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Got my degree in history and was involved with the Christian Student Center, whom we have a number of people here with us this evening, so be sure to welcome them and show them the love that I know that you have for them. Uh, after college, I spent three years in China working as a missionary and as an English teacher in a university. Uh, currently, or after coming back from China, I worked as a campus minister in Greenville, North Carolina, and am now studying my master's in divinity uh, at Heritage Christian, which is, uh, used, to be, used to be the International Bible uh, College in Florence, Alabama. So last time I was up here, I began a series on spiritual disciplines, talking about when we pray. And when we pray, we talked about how it is important for us to pray with the proper attitude, with the, with the proper knowledge of who we are in light of who God is, God's perfection and our need for a relationship with our Father. And when we pray, we pray with intention that, that the prayers would not be just rote sayings or repetitions or, or just a wish list or a laundry list of things we want from God, but a conversation with our Father. And finally, that when we, forgive, when we ask for forgiveness, that we are first forgiving. That God's people are a praying people. God's people are a forgiving people. So this evening, we've, we continue this series talking about when, well, uh, Brian, <laughs> there we go. When we give. In the book of First Kings, uh, if you would, turn to First Kings chapter 17. Starting in verse 8, we find Elijah. He's been hiding by the Kinnereth River, by the Kinnereth Brook. He's been fed by ravens. They've been bringing him meat and bread, and he's been drinking water out of the stream. But eventually, the brook dries up, and the food stops coming, and God tells him it's time to move. There's been a drought in the land for, for some time now, and we know that uh, by the end of the drought, the drought would have lasted three and a half years. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded the widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring him, bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm now gathering sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, 
that we, that we may eat it and die. Many of us are not strangers to drought. In 20, 2016, we experienced a drought of a number of months here that resulted in forest fires. Many of you who kept gardens, your gardens failed because there just wasn't enough rainfall to keep our plants alive. Our, our lawns died back, trees died. It was difficult. But in an age before industrial farming, one bad crop season is life and death. For this widow, a person who is within her society outcast and, and not really able to make a living because she doesn't have a husband anymore and is seen as a liability because of her own, the burden to bring her into a family, but also her child, she had nothing. She had no one to care for her. And God sends Elijah to her, to someone who doesn't have anything, to someone who doesn't have to feed him. And Elijah asks her for the last little bit of food from a starving mother that she was going to prepare for her starving son. Elijah says to her, he says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug shall not run empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. We have a couple lessons here. First is the prophet's lesson. The prophet goes to this woman and teaches her, tells her to trust in God. You see, Sidon is outside of Israel. This is a Gentile people. This is a Gentile land. And God sends Elijah outside of the people of God for refuge. And it's inside with this woman who is not just an outside people, but an outside person within the outside people. She's the outcast's outcast. And that's where he finds refuge. And he shows her to trust in not the Lord, my God, but the God of Israel. But the second lesson is the widow's lesson. That she has faith and that God rewards that faith. As we move towards the first century, as we move into the New Testament, we're looking at not just a collection of stories, but a collection of stories that, that come within a specific place at a specific time to a specific people. Now, it is true that the Bible is for all people in all times and in all places, but we need to look at the context when we're trying to understand these stories. You my undergraduate degrees in history, so I can't help but but want to dig into the history whenever I'm looking at these things. And so we have our map of the Roman world. And as Rome began to grow and spread throughout the Mediterranean world and began to encompass the sea to the point that it was not the Mediterranean Sea, they just referred to it as, that's our sea. That's ours. And everything around it is ours. Through 
government and commerce and trade and travel, ideas began to spread. And in the Roman tradition, there was this idea of a thing called patronage. And we don't really see it mentioned in the New Testament, but we see its effects on the way people behave. And the way patronage works is you have a person who has, and he goes to a person who does not have as much. And he says, I'm going to give you money or food or some sort of physical supply. And in exchange, you'll support me. You'll support anything that I put up for a vote. You'll support my businesses. You'll support me socially. You'll talk good about me to people in the community. And as I rise in the social tide, you'll rise along with me. I scratch my back, you scratch yours. But in Israel, it took a particularly interesting shift. You see, in, in the intertestamental period, the, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a little shift where um, the, when Alexander the Great came in, and this is probably more history than many of you care, so, so please don't fall asleep. Um, when Alexander the Great came in, the people of the Mediterranean world, a lot of them began speaking Greek. And so the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And the New Testament was written in Greek. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the, the Hebrew word for almsgiving, which is a very specific word, well, Greek didn't have that. And it was so linked to this idea of righteousness that when they translated almsgiving, they just translated it as righteousness. Almsgiving is righteousness in the Hebrew mind. It's the same thing. Much in the same way that if I asked you to, to tell me the difference between liberty and freedom, well, we would you go, well, that's the same thing. To the Hebrew mind, almsgiving and righteousness, are, that's, that's the same thing. So, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a lot of interesting things going on in this verse. Jesus warns his audience. He says, beware. The, he warns them of the danger of practicing their righteousness in front of other people for the sake of being seen by them. Now, we might sit and wonder, well, what's, what's the issue with that? If I'm, if I'm doing my righteous deeds and other people are seeing me do them, What's the danger in that? Maybe it will encourage them to do likewise. Maybe that they will be, uh, maybe they'll see that I'm a good person and that they'll, maybe they'll come to my synagogue, you know, in the Jewish mindset. Maybe this will, this will have some sort of benefit. Well, that's unlikely to be the case because the reason why a Jewish person would, would practice their righteousness in front of other people 
It was a way of saying, I'm just a little bit holier than you are. And there was a... It became sort of a competition. Not to, not to outdo one another in, in doing good deeds, but outdo one another in becoming a better person in society. And so it becomes not about benefaction, doing literally doing good for another person, but it's about transaction. It's a trade. I'm going to trade you a good deed for social status. So when he says, when you give, don't sound the trumpet. Like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. You see, in the synagogues, they literally had boxes. Almsgiving boxes. That in addition to your traditional, um, your, your tithe to the, or not your tithe, but your, your sacrifice to the, to the temple or to your community, you also had your almsgiving box, which you would give a little bit extra in. And it was kind of something you'd make a big deal out of. You'd make a big show out of it to show how good a person you are. Again, not to encourage others. Not to do good, but to build up oneself, to build up one's own personal pride. The warning here is that this is a bad deal. It's sort of like selling snowmobiles in Mexico. You know, it, it, if you are doing your good deeds to be praised by other people, that's it. That's all you get. You get praised by other people, and that's the end of the deal. It doesn't matter how good a bit or how good or big a sacrifice it was. But if you're doing it for other people, you get your blessing from other people. But if you're doing it before God, God sees in secret. God is the one who rewards you. God never tells us to do anything that he does not example for us to do. He gives us an example to follow. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, I think this is so great, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus is coming down off the mount. Chapter 8, this is when he came down from the mountain, great crowds follow him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. People probably weren't crowding around. Lepers were unclean. Not just ceremonially, but socially, you don't go near them. You stay away from them. So it's almost, imagine for yourself, you've got this crowd following after this, this really incredible rabbi, this great teacher. Like, where does this guy come from? This guy's incredible. I want to follow him. And then here comes this leper. And just, everybody moves away. People are clearing, making, making way for this leper to come in. They don't want to be near him. The leper kneels before Jesus and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer a gift that Moses commanded for a proof for them. Jesus isn't doing this to be, he's not saying, hey, I want you to go tell everybody who did this. I'm the Messiah. I'm kind of a big deal. I want everybody to know. He, he does righteousness. He provides what this man needs 
because the man needs it. This isn't a transaction. It's benefaction. Turn the page over to chapter 9. Verse 1. Sorry. Not, not verse 1. Verse 27. Matthew nine twenty-seven. And Jesus passed from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Now, I think a lot of times when people read these stories, and there's a number of these stories, there's at least one other example in Matthew and about four in Mark where Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. Uh, one example is the transfiguration where he's like, look, keep this quiet. Why does Jesus want to keep these things quiet? We make a lot of, make a lot of hay over this kind of thing, saying, well, maybe it's a reverse psychology. Maybe he really does want them to tell. No, I think he doesn't want them to, he tells them, don't tell anyone, because he doesn't want them to tell anyone. He wants to do good things for the sake of doing good things. And that's the example that we should follow. Acts chapter 3. After the ministry of Jesus has ended and the apostles have stepped into the role of spreading the gospel and the telling people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they have the gift of the Holy Spirit and Peter and John go to the temple. And it says in verse 1, it says, uh, at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., um, a lame man from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those who entered into the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And, the Peter, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But... What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple. This is probably the first time this man has ever been to the temple grounds because as a lame man, he was unclean. He couldn't go in there. So he sat by this gate his whole life, peering in through the doorway, and finally... He's able to enter in to the temple or the temple court. And walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what has happened to him. 
there are numerous examples throughout the Old and New Testament that I could point out to you, whether it's Barnabas' example in the next chapter over of him selling a plot of land and giving the whole proceeds over to the church or the church sharing everything they owned so that the poor could be taken care of or the book of James where if you took out the stuff on caring for the poor, you wouldn't have much of a letter at all. When Jesus says, when you give, the expectation is that the people of God are people who give. Finally, turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. In the book of Matthew, this is the last major teaching of Jesus. This is the way he closes out his last sermon. Talking about the final judgment. Listen to what he tells his disciples to do. And and listen to what he doesn't say. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is in verse 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd does sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning, who is God preparing his kingdom for? He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you as sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God's people are those who, not just giving alms, but giving food, giving water, giving hospitality, giving care, giving opportunities to others. We show care for Christ by showing care for those who are in need. Ultimately, 
the most important, the most valuable thing that we have to give is ourselves. If you haven't given yourself to God, if you've not been, if you've not had your sins washed away in the waters of baptism, if, if you have, and maybe like Ananias and Sapphira, you maybe gave over part, but not the whole thing, but you want to give your whole life over to God and you want to repent, this is the opportunity. I think sometimes we see the invitation as a scary time, maybe of judgment, but this is a time of celebration and of welcoming and of love. So if you have any prayer for the congregation, if you, if you have something to confess or you have your desire to turn your life over to Christ, please do so now as together we stand and sing.